0: Welcome to Fried, the ultimate guide to burnout podcast. If you've ever been burnt out because of your job, your relationship, or just your life, this is the place for you. We will talk all things burnout by sharing deep stories of personal transformation each week with a new guest who vows to share their stories without leaving out the scary bits. This is Raw, Honest, and brought to you by acupuncturist and burnout coach, Kate Donovan, whose own experiences make her determined to change the current burnout culture. Hello once again. Welcome to Fried the Burnout podcast. Today, my guest is Rosalind Cardinal, who is calling us from Australia. So we have a long time, a long distance call today, and I do believe that I am on currently a Tuesday, and Rosalind is currently on a Wednesday. So we will thank her for getting up early in the morning to talk to us. Rosalind Cardinal, when she was growing up, Roz wanted to be a vet or a scientist, but her fascination with human behavior and neuroscience led her to a career in organizational development specializing in improving business outcomes by developing individuals, teams, and organizations. After more than 20 years in corporate human resources and organizational development roles, a successful battle with cancer gave Roz the nudge to take her passion for transforming leaders and improving how individuals and organizations cope with change in a new direction. Leaving her senior corporate role in 2012, Roz established her consulting business, Shaping Change to achieve her goals. Her inspirational business story was featured in the 2014 book, Australian Entrepreneur. Roz is a solutions and results oriented facilitator with expertise spanning strategic planning, leadership development, organizational culture, change management, emotional intelligence, and employee engagement. She is also a talented and globally awarded executive and leadership coach with current coaching clients at executive and senior levels in government agencies, private enterprise, and the community sectors. Roz is a keen writer, and in addition to her book, The Resilient Employee, and her own blog, she contributes regular articles to Leaders in Heels, The Huffington Post, and for People Development Magazine. Roz, you sound like a busy woman, so I am especially grateful for your time and your energy that you're sharing with us today. Welcome to the show.
1: Absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on.
0: We have been starting every show with the guest's personal story of burnout, what happened, how it happened, when it happened, and and how they came through the other end. So, If you would love to just dive into it, we would love to lend our ears to your story.
1: Yes, look, burnout is a really big issue for a lot of people and my personal burnout story uh, goes back quite a long way actually. I was um, working in government and in in corporate for many, many years and as a very um, highly intrinsically motivated achiever, I found a lot of frustrations in some of the, you know, bureaucracy and some of the way that things were done and I was constantly pushing myself to you know, work harder, prove myself, do more, be more, you know, achieve more. And I put a lot of, there was external pressure on me, but a lot of the pressure came from internally. I was very, very hard on myself. I was a raging perfectionist. I was, um, you know, highly driven and very much coming from this sense of feeling like I wasn't being, um, being valued or being as impactful as I wanted to be. Now, that actually led me to a bout of chronic fatigue in about um, – because it was probably about 2003, 2004, I had chronic fatigue for a few years. And, you know, in sort of typical fashion for me, pushed through it. I kept working and I kept, you know, dragging myself through it. And, and yeah, I eventually recovered. I went to a naturopath and had acupuncture and a whole range of treatments. And it took a long time to recover from that. And it felt like I'd just gotten over that and just gotten back into what I'd probably term my usual self, although I hadn't dealt with all of the internal uh, challenges that I had around, you know, how I felt about myself and my self-worth. And I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2010. Now, that was, a, as you can imagine, a huge shock. And for me, it was one of those sort of really cruel twists of fate that I was actually diagnosed on the day, the anniversary of my mother's death from breast cancer. Oh. So it's just one of those, yeah, just awful coincidence type of things. And I remember sitting there in the doctor's office and, you know, I'd been in for routine screening, which then turned into, can you please come back and, you know, a whole range of tests. And as I went through the tests, through the day, I knew as the day went on that it wasn't going to be good news. At the end of it, the doctor—he look—he handled it really well. He just, you know, sat myself, my husband down, and he said, "Look, I'm so sorry, you've got cancer." And it really did feel like the the world just dropped out from underneath me. It really did. It was that all the things that flashed through your mind about maybe this is it, maybe that was my last Christmas I've ever had with my children. You know, I'm going to die. That was obviously the first thing that sprang to mind. Is that's it? I'm going to die. That it was a Massive wake up call in a whole lot of ways as well. I mean, for the first few days, I think you're really in shock, and the surgery gets um, scheduled extremely quickly. So I was diagnosed on a Tuesday, and I was in hospital on the Friday having surgery. And I guess one of the the silly looking back on it now is one of those really silly things. I went back to work as if nothing had happened for the couple of days. I just went back <laughs> to work and said to my boss, "I've got surgery on Friday. <laughs> I've got cancer," <laughs> and worked those couple of days. And I think it was just more to take my mind off it than anything else. And um, but it in a lot of ways that I know it's a, a weird thing to say but it was a bit of a blessing in disguise because I don't know what would have happened to me if I'd kept on pushing myself the way I was pushing and doing the things that I was doing and it was having a toll on my relationships and my kids and my health and a whole range of things and it was almost like the universe had to slap me in the face and go you know you've got to stop <laughs> and that was um, you know obviously quite a low point and but Going through treatment, I mean, I was really lucky. I didn't have to have chemo in the end. I had radiation and I had my ovaries removed to treat the cancer. That was, having my ovaries out was a really big thing too. But um, the treatment part of it was just stillness. You know, you just don't get to do anything. You have to basically rest up and the, the radiation takes it out of you, you know, quite heavily. So I spent a lot of time just lying on the couch watching reruns of Sex in the City and, you know, just, yeah, uh, resting and thinking. And for me, um, it became really, really obvious that I needed to redesign life and I needed to rethink what I was doing and I needed to consider the impact that my internal need for, for validation around my competence, I needed to, to reevaluate the impact all of that was having on me and do things completely differently. So I made myself a few promises and I have to say I'm quite happy about the fact that I've actually kept all of them, which has been really good. So what I really said, um, decided back then, was I decided that I needed to shift up my life. So I needed to do something different with my work. I needed to move into a place where work-wise I was being feeling genuinely fulfilled and not feeling like there was this big emptiness around, you know, what I was doing, what I was trying to achieve, and, and not achieving it. I also said to my husband, you know, if I get through this, I want to travel because we've been saying for years we'd love to go overseas but there was always a really good reason not to go. You know, the kids are too young, there's too much on at work, there's not enough annual leave, all of these reasons. So I said, you know, as soon as I'm better, we're going to start travelling. So we've made a lot of changes. You know, we travel every year. We travel overseas for about five to six weeks every year. um, We've been going to the States now for I think probably eight trips now since 2011 was our first trip. So every year we, you know, head over your way and sort of... um, spend a bit of time in the States. We also go, like this year we had, uh, the year just gone, we had three overseas trips, uh, one to Bali, one to the States and one to Fiji. And that's part of that, you know, taking time out to refresh and renew so that burnout doesn't catch up with us again. And I quit my corporate role as soon as I sort of had my ducks in a row, I quit my corporate role and started my own business, which has been amazing. I just love it. I'm doing the work that I was born to do. I'm helping people. It's just complete purpose fulfilment as far as I'm concerned. And I look after myself so much better. I, I recognize when stress is starting to get on top of me, and I do something about it. And I've got much more um, routine and strictness, I guess, with myself around self-care. And I'm in proper self-care—not just having a bubble bath or whatever—but it's that sort of really getting into, you know, really good boundaries, looking after myself, uh, having non-negotiables in my life. So that's sort of my story. That's where I where I was and where I came. Sort of how I came through it and where I've got to today, I've landed in a really, really good place. And somebody did ask me once. um, It wasn't, "Were you grateful for having cancer?" But it was something along that line. I can't remember the wording of the question. And I thought about it. I said, "I said genuinely, I honestly believe if I hadn't had cancer, I wouldn't be in the wonderful place I am now." So in a lot of ways, I am grateful for it.
0: Yeah. And so you said from today's perspective, because the diagnosis was, you know, two thousand and ten. So we're talking nine years ago, and. From today's perspective, it's easy to give the story the way that you gave it now and say, you know, I I realized that I needed to make this change. I realized I wanted more fulfillment, so I changed things. But do you remember? And and if you do, could you share with us a little bit about the process of how you picked through your mind at that part? How what made you realize that the self talk wasn't the way it should be? That that internal value, that internal worth, um, wasn't at the level it should be. How did you how did you get there?
1: It was part of the process of f- thinking through while I was sick. It was, like I said, you have a lot of time to sit and think. There's a lot else you can do, really. And it was really that sort of recognising, um, it was all the regrets I had was really the big catalyst. Mm. It was that sense of looking back and going, if this is it, if this is, if you know, this is the end for me. What's my life been like? Have I enjoyed it? Have I felt fulfilled? Have I added value to the world? Have I given back to other people? Have I been, have I reached my full potential? Have I been everything that I possibly could be? And that was sort of the reflective process I went through was I started unpacking those regrets and I sort of went, okay, so, you know, let's assume I get through it. At that stage, I didn't know whether I would or not. I mean, you always suspect the worst. And it was, what would I do differently? It was really that, that space of, if this is what's not working, what would I do differently if I get another chance at this? How am I going to do it over again in a different way?
0: I think that's it a was, beautiful statement, this yeah. unpacking my regrets. Mm,
1: it really was. It was thinking about, you know, it, I mean, it goes back to a lot of people say that, that uh, people who nurse uh, patients who are dying they've all got regrets and all of their regrets are around things like not spending as much time with family as I could have. Nobody ever says, I wish I'd spent a lot more time at work. Right. And that was me. It was sort of the sense that I was giving everything, all of my energy and time and effort was going into work because I was trying to prove something. And at the end of the day, it was all attached to my self-worth. The fact that I felt that I wasn't a wasn't a valib- I wasn't a valuable person. I wasn't worthwhile unless I was contributing enormous amounts at work and to the detriment of everything else in my life. And that certainly wasn't a healthy attitude.
0: And so, did you just? I mean, I know the the question to this is is not a yes, but did you just wake up one day and say, "Well, that's a bad attitude to have. I'll change it." It happens.
1: It look I had six months off so you know six months of treatment so it was quite a long time but I don't recall it it sort of being a a blinding flash of inspiration or anything It was more kind of like a slow churn through you know let's let's look at what I would do differently what what is it I really enjoy about my life and don't that sort of whole pros and cons thing I I wrote a lot I journaled a lot I had sheets and sheets and sheets of paper about what life was like, what I wanted my life to be like. And when I sort of sat down and did the what would I really like life to look like, I realised there was this massive gap between what I wanted and what I actually had had up to date and then went through and went what's stopping me, like what's actually stopping me from doing this because if it was easy, I would have already done it.
0: Right.
1: So it was what's actually getting in the way and it came down to when I drilled into it, the thing that was getting in the way was just me. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I didn't have to do all the things I, I was doing. I didn't have to be travelling. You know, I did a lot of travelling at work. I didn't have to do it. There's a lot of things I didn't have to do that I was volunteering myself for. It's It was one of those sort of things, you know, whenever there was an impossible project at work, I was always the first person who put my hand up and said, pick me, pick me, you know.
0: I'll prove to everybody that I can get this done and do it well.
1: Ab- of course. Yeah, absolutely. You know, let me do it. I can handle this. And so many things I was doing were things that I was just taking on myself that just, You know, nobody was making me do it. It was just me. And that was the really big thing is I always used to say, but I can't help it. You know, I have to. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I have to. I've got to do this. And it's, yeah, exactly. No, you don't. That was the really big thing. You know, you don't.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I had a conversation with somebody one day, a, a coaching client who was telling me that, you know, but people always come to her when things are falling apart so that she can fix them. So then she's in this position where she has to fix them because, you know, everybody else made such a mess of it. And I said, "Well, but you want to be the president of this company, and you're acting like the janitor. You're acting like the cleanup crew." Yeah. And she, I, it took her breath away. It was a like a, a very abrupt statement. It was a little brash, you know. I did it on purpose. It, there was there was thought behind it. I didn't just throw it out there. I, but I I just kind of pushed that a little bit, and she stopped and she was like, "Holy shit, I'm the mm-hmm. cleanup crew." Yep. Yeah. And it shifted a lot of things for her, just that one simple statement, because she thought that she was being, quote, unquote, forced, but she was, like, glorifying her ability to mm. fix everyone else's mistakes. So, of course, they were bringing them to her. Why wouldn't they? That's what she's proven mm. she's valuable and for.
1: And that's exactly it, is this sense of our self-worth being attached to our our capability and our capacity, So it's that, you know, I only feel whole when I'm doing more, producing more, being the smartest in the room, making the best decisions, you know, and it really, it's very isolating because it it gets us to the state where we really don't think we need other people. You know, it's like I'm so capable, I actually don't need other people and, in fact, they're just getting in my way.
0: Yeah, yeah, which is a crazy thing to think. And symptom one of the main symptoms of burnout, as it is described now in the medical literature, is feeling unimpactful. Yes. Right? Yes. So so I think you can burn out because you feel unimpactful and I also think that you feel unimpactful because you're burnt out and that's like a never-ending circle that just is eating it like a snake eating its own tail. Exactly,
1: because it becomes a vicious cycle of I, you know, I need to keep proving myself. And, there's, and the thing about it, the thing about this sort of um, internal competitiveness is that it's, um, you know, we have our own, you know, referent group that we're comparing ourselves to. Like mm-hmm. I want to be the best performer in my team. And then when we get to the top of that pile, you don't sort of stop and go, oh, I'm done, you know, <laughs> I, can, yeah. I can relax. It's like what's the next big, you know, what's the next referent group? What's my next pile that I can start to clamber up? Mm-hmm. And it's a never-ending thing. And I work with clients, um, you know, high perfectionist, high competitive and, you know, this sort of, again, this internal need to prove yourself. And it's it never stops there's always the next challenge. There's always the next big project or the next team or the next promotion or the next whatever it is. Right. You know, I've been working with women who are, you know, at the top of their game, their CEOs, and they're saying, you know, right, I know I need to get on some more boards. And it's like, how many more boards do you want to be on? You're on three or four already <laughs> as well as being a CEO. And they're like, I'm just not contributing enough. I need to do more. And it's so interesting. It's this sort of internal drive. And it does, it leads to burnout because we haven't got any way a lot of the time of pulling it up and going, actually, this isn't realistic.
0: Right. Do you know Martha Beck, the life coach? Yes, I do. Yeah. So she's someone that I love. I've read all of her books and I read a lot of articles that she writes. And um, I think that she's wonderful. And she has this theory that she says that all of us have a jury that we carry around with us. And you're saying, you know, you can climb to the top of the pile of this team. But also in my personal life, one of the big issues in my burnout was I'm trying to prove myself to this jury of people that are totally random, that a lot of them are not even in my life anymore. They're from my childhood or or Mm -hmm. from high school. And they don't have anything to do with the life that I'm living now. But I have this constant or had well, have had, you know, we're, we're works in progress. I have this idea that if I see them somewhere, I need them to be impressed by what I've done. Mm. And she said, all of us choose five, about around five or six people that we consider to be, you know, what will, when, when we say, what will the people think, you know, what will people say? There are actually five people that we are choosing to assume what they may think about us in a hypothetical mm. situation, and that's what we're reacting on.
1: Yes, absolutely. And for you know me, and also a number of my coaching clients, it's it's all childhood. It's yeah. you know the way that their families raised them. You know, I find that with really high performing, high achieving women, a lot of the time they were raised in an environment where um, where school achievement was considered to be really important. Yeah, so they true. were often sent to sent to the best schools, or you know. Mm -hmm. and always expected to be top of the class. Mm -hmm. Um, And look, it's, you know, parents don't mean to do that. It's certainly, I'm I'm not talking about people growing up necessarily in dysfunctional families. A lot of these people come from very stable functional families, but the emphasis was always on what they did. So it's that they they become attached to this idea that my self-worth is attached to my delivery of task. You know, it's because I'm clever, that I'm loved because I'm clever. Right. And then it's a constant drive to always be clever, because if you're not clever, then you're not loved is the the underpinning unpack you know if I'm not being clever and if I'm not delivering and I'm not smart if I'm not being you know reaching my true potential whether that's academic or at work then I'm not worthy anymore and that's a very very damaging internal dialogue for us
0: yeah absolutely and one of the things that you said that you do now when you said you have like pretty strict self-care and the word that you used to describe that was boundaries
1: yes can you talk about that that's the the root of everything is is really boundary setting and it's around um, when we're operating not at our best it's because our boundaries are slipping so what we're doing is we're taking on things we're agreeing to do things that we really don't want to do or we don't have the capacity to do and it's being really really clear about what it is that you can and can't do one of the things I find with women is there's either this drive for you know I can take it on because I want to prove that I can do it because otherwise I feel I feel less if I can't take on more work and then the other side of it is women who don't like saying no because they're afraid of offending people or they won't like me anymore if I say no and I find that quite often it just needs a little script around a really nice way to say no that doesn't make you feel like a bad person I used this with a client just the other day who said I don't know how to say no and I said well how about this something like I'd love to be able to help you but I just don't have the bandwidth right now and she said, oh, yeah, I think I could say that, that that feels okay. But it's quite often this sort of sense of, um, but you've got, to, you've got to dig down into why I'm actually feeling this. Is it because I don't want to say no, because I don't want to upset somebody, I don't want them to think I'm a bad person? Or am I taking this on because I don't want to say no, because then I feel like I'm not capable enough? So it's being really clear about boundaries, about what you will and won't accept. I've learned to uh, check in with myself whenever a new opportunity presents itself to basically check in and go: Have I genuinely got the space to deliver this and to do a really, really great job of it without impacting my own health and my own well-being? And that for me is my my boundary. That's my check-in piece.
0: That's a beautiful question, and this is a huge part of my work. I I make a differentiation between the boundaries that people talk about in everyday life, the assertiveness boundaries, like this ability to say no, like you're mentioning. Mm-hmm. And so you also alluded to this concept that I call the knot. It's about your inner boundary, the thing that you're meant to take care of and the decisions that you're making. And it's not just about saying no to other people. It's about not over-offering things that people aren't even asking for.
1: Yes. Not raising your
0: hand, like you said earlier, when somebody says, we have this big, big problem, and not raising your hand before, not even giving other people a chance to step up over giving of yourself without the request from other people. So you don't even have to say no to other people sometimes. I believe the first part of boundary building that most self-care is missing is this ability to stop yourself from getting up and making someone tea because they said they were thirsty but they didn't say, could you make me tea?
1: Yes, that is so true. It's that, you know, like we started talking about earlier, it's nobody's forcing us to do this, uh, this stuff a lot of the time. We're doing it ourselves because of this drive to prove ourselves in some way. It's either proving that I'm really highly capable and competent or proving that I'm a really good, nice person. Yeah. And those two frames make us, we volunteer for things that we don't want to do. I mean, I've you know, unpacked with people some really interesting um, stories they tell themselves about it, you know, this whole thing, of I have to, I have to. And it's like, well, who's making you do that? well, I don't know, I just have to. And if I go, no, you've got to help me understand who's making you do this, they get right back to the actually nobody. Right. I just feel like I have to. And then yes. that's the really interesting bit to delve into is, okay, so let's explore that piece. But it's breaking through this, um, this veneer that we put up, which says I have to and somebody else is somehow making me do it and, you know, I don't have a choice. And reality is that we have a choice. Even if somebody came to us with the most genuine um, need, we've still got choices about whether we say yes or no.
0: The extreme I take this to in my office is you do not have to feed your children.
1: Mm. You don't have to do anything. You know, it's that sort of thing of um, if you didn't want to, you don't have to do the housework. You don't have to get out of bed in the morning. I mean, right. obviously there are consequences. Yeah, but it's still there are you know,
0: consequences, a a choice. But you don't have to.
1: You don't have to. You've got choices around it. And yeah. even consequences can be managed. I mean, if you are already got a lot on your plate and you're feeling overwhelmed already, Uh, some you just let there there are things that you can let slip I I talk to clients in the context of um, it's a bit like juggling and I read this somewhere and I honestly don't remember who it was so I can't credit them but it's like juggling and you've got three types of balls you've got the juggling balls which are rubber and if you drop them they're just going to bounce and you can pick them up and start juggling again and there's no harm done then there's oranges and if you drop those they get a bit bit bruised and they might sort of squish a bit but you can still pick them up and keep juggling and then there's glass balls and if you drop those they break and it's all over And it's assigning all the things that you're juggling in your life a category, like what sort of ball are they? And if they're rubber balls, just let them go. And you'll, you know, it's keep the glass ones in the air, look after the oranges, but if you drop a few oranges, it doesn't really matter that much, but let the rubber balls go.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really important. And something that you said earlier as well that when you're now in this place where you're taking care of yourself differently, you have like pretty strict self care. Boundaries is really important. And you also said that you are much more vigilant when it comes to recognizing stress. So, how does stress show up in your life?
1: For me, I have for years and years and years, I was getting tension headaches. Mm. I didn't realise it was tension headaches. I was quite prone to sinus infections when I was younger and every time I went to the doctor with a what we know now to be a tension headache, they were assuming it was sinus so they were giving me antibiotics and, mm. you know, sort of, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And at one stage I was told it was a, un, a, a previously undiagnosed ear infection because I started getting a little bit dizzy, middle ear infection. This was all prior to my, my cancer diagnosis. And they eventually sent me off to an ear, nose and throat specialist to get looked at and he poked one of those camera things up your nose which is yeah. really unpleasant and then said your sinuses are absolutely fine and he said what you've got is what he calls a slipped tension headache which he said is really common in women and instead of it's instead of being around the scalp area which is where tension headaches normally show up it actually sort of he said it slips down the front of your face so it shows up around your eyes and your you know where your sinuses are essentially your, your eyes and your jaw so instead of being a scalp thing it becomes a face thing and mm. That uh, realising that and realising that I actually didn't have chronic sinusitis, I just had a, was getting tension headaches, was actually a really big thing for me. And for me, that's my first sign. When I start to get that sort of creeping, um, unpleasant tightness around my face is when I know that I'm getting stressed. And it's actually a really good indicator for me because the physical sign shows up before anything else. Right. So I might feel fine. I kind of check in with myself and go, I'm getting a tension headache. What's going on? And I'll go... I feel absolutely fine. I don't feel stressed. But for me now, I know over years of, of doing this, that that actually is my sign to, to pull it up and really go, okay, what do I need to change right now?
0: Yeah, what's actually going on? This is something that with my patients and my acupuncture practice, I call a red flag symptom.
1: Mm. And everybody's Mm. got
0: certain ones, like mine happens to be neck, you know, for whatever reason, that's just what comes up in me. And some people get colds, and some people have back Mm. pain, and some people have IBS, you know, irritable Mm. bowel symptoms and things like that. But everybody's got the thing that happens first when there's stress happening in their lives. Mm. Yeah. And so that's it's a good thing to have. And I keep and I it's I'm glad that you said it that way because I always explain to patients that way. This is a good thing to have because it allows you to check in because in your body it will happen before you recognize it in your life. Hey,
1: I'm taking on a bit too much and I just need to to just say what who who I'm serving, what's actually happening, and just go, where are my boundaries slipping is really what it's about for me. Where yeah. are my boundaries slipping? Where have I decided somewhere in my life that it was actually more effective for me to rush back to the office and do an email rather than going for a quick walk on the beach, you know, like I would normally do that kind of thing. Right.
0: Right. And so the tension headaches are your things. Are there, is this something that you also talk about with clients, how to, how they can recognize those stress symptoms in their lives?
1: Yes, it, it comes up a lot because uh, a lot of the work I do is in emotional intelligence and one of the key things about emotions is they express themselves as a physical feeling most of the time. And quite often for, I'll say to people, it's, you'll feel the physical feeling before you even can label it an emotion. So I had a, a client who told me that he before he gets angry, he can actually feel a rush of heat going up his body. Mm-hmm. And he said if he can tap into that rush of heat, he can actually stop it before he even starts to feel the anger. So it's, it's that kind of being very attuned to what your, what your physical body is telling you. You know, if you're feeling slightly sick or if you're feeling, you know, a little bit hot or you start to feel whatever, um, it's usually a sign that there's something going on and it's just worth paying attention to that because we don't, we don't feel into our bodies nearly enough. No. We spend so much time in our heads, particularly if you've got a very, um, you know, brain power type of job, you tend to, it's quite easy to get caught up in the, in the flow of the work and just be, you know, powering through things and not realizing that you're sitting there and you've actually got a stiff neck or your back's a bit sore or even you're getting hungry. You know, I've got clients who sometimes tell me I forgot to eat lunch, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I do actually say to them it takes a really special kind of stupid to forget to eat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and this but, is know, so important This and this is something that's come up in quite a few of the podcasts that I've recorded so far In is this um ability that we need to encourage people to learn, to listen to their bodies, to really pay attention Mm. to the signs and signals that come up, because we don't always know what's an emotional thing. And this is something my mother and I have spoken about a lot over the years, because she had a lot of different pain issues. And I kept telling her, well, there's unresolved this, there's unresolved that. And in Chinese medicine, in my medicine, this makes so much sense. And we talk about this a lot. So I can connect those things very easily, even when you said, you know, he felt heat in Chinese Mm. medicine. Anger is called liver heat rising. Yeah, so, exactly. So of course it's heat going up. Like that makes total sense to me because my medicine knows that. So I had this conversation with my mother for years and it wasn't until she started working with a different practitioner, obviously not me because I'm the daughter and that's mm. never going to get you where you need to go, you know, no. <laughs> but yeah, she started with another practitioner and she started really noticing that, that connection between her emotions and her body. And she said to me, but Katie, I always felt that that was for other people. Hmm. other people felt those things not me because I'm smart I'm the the clever one I'm the you know just like you're mentioning sort of in my head so she it took a really kind of almost severe experience for her to accept the fact that it's not just everyone else's body in the world that does this her body does this too
1: (laughs) yeah yes it's almost like this idea that if we're intellectual enough we don't need to worry about our bodies our bodies will just you know it's almost like our bodies are just a life support system for our intellect
0: <laughs> yeah right and so is that how you then define emotional intelligence this ability to feel this change in your body and adjust accordingly or do you is there a a deeper or different definition that you give it in your work look the
1: technical definition for emotional intelligence is the ability to reason with and about emotions and a big part of that is that being able to recognise it and having techniques for recognising your emotions and the emotions of other people. And, you know, certainly in terms of recognising your own emotional state, the body check-in is the first place to start. It's, you know, a lot of people don't have uh, good emotional language, I find. There's about 30 to 40% of people who just don't have emotional words. So when you ask them how they feel, they don't know. Right. And that, I find for them, the getting back into their body, tell me how you feel, what's going on, and they'll say, oh, I feel a little bit sick. And I'm feeling a little bit tense. And, okay, so that combination of a little bit sick and a little bit tense is probably low-level anxiety, for anxiety. example.
0: Right, exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: So giving, helping them understand, making that connection with physical um, sensations. And, look, there's so, look, emotional intelligence is a huge subject. There's so many yeah. things that we can do with it. It's so intrinsically linked to our ability to be healthy as human beings and have healthy relationships and, you know, good boundaries for ourselves and to navigate the world effectively. It's, um, like I said, it's one of those things where I really think people should be taught in school. You know, it's, it's we, we all need to grow up with it. And it's so interesting that so many people that I come across just don't have any language for it. They just don't have any concepts. When I say, tell me about how you feel, they honestly, honestly don't know, which right. is, you know, again, gets back that disconnect between our, in my, our intellect and our body.
0: I actually spoke with someone who's, a, uh, her name is Terry Hofford, and she is a body positivity um, activist, and she's she wrote a blog post about you know uh, people saying, "Oh, I f- I feel fat," and she said, "Well, are you feeling bloated, or are you feeling self conscious, or are you feeling mm-hmm. you know what's the actual feeling?" And she there in the blog post that she wrote, there was a, a wheel of feelings for people to mm-hmm. sort of glance over and choose from. So that they could actually pick something that was fitting them at the time. Like uh, what you're saying about the vocab- not having the vocabulary. If there's mm. somebody listening and you feel like you don't have the emotional intelligence that you would like to have. You don't feel in tune with these emotions. One of the best exercises that I've seen is literally to get a list of emotions. And start reading them and start asking yourself, well, what would this feel like in my body? You'll start mm. to make those connections really quickly.
1: Yes. Really yeah. quickly
0: because your body knows what they feel like.
1: Mm. One of the activities I do with with clients is get them to, and it's always fun when you do it in a group because you can split the group up and give them a, an emotion each to work with. So we use the meta emotions, you know, happy, angry, sad, and so on, right. and get them to come up with a list of as many words as possible that are connected to that particular word. So what are all the variants of happy? And then once they've written all their words out, I get them to rank them in order of intensity.
0: Right
1: which is a really interesting activity. And, um, yeah, it's been quite interesting The in, in groups where we do that. Probably the lowest number of words I've seen a group come up with was about five or six. Mm-hmm. They uh, literally only could come up between it. The groups were quite big, so I think we probably had about six or eight people in each group with each of the meta-emotions. And for a group of people to be able to come up with only six, a list of six, was just yeah, I was blown away. And I've had groups who have just kept on going and they've had like 35 words and I've had to go up to them and say, hey, look, you know, we're going to have lunch. If you guys want to have lunch, you're going to keep working on your list of words. And they're like, no, we're working on our list of words. <laughs> um, so it's it's really interesting the, the difference, the big gap between people who have a really uh, comprehensive emotional vocabulary and those who don't because if you've got the words for it, you're far more likely to be able to identify Accurately how you feel and also how other people feel, and then it leads into this. So what does all of that mean? And what am I going to do with it? And now that I know this emotions you know, in this situation, is it going to escalate or de-escalate? What's actually happening? What's the intensity of what's going on? So right. it's actually a really important skill.
0: I I love it, and it's one of I think the book that I the first book that I read on it was uh, while I was still in acupuncture school, so probably about two thousand and oh boy four. Three or four, and it was called Emotional Intelligence. Is the name of the mm. book, and I don't remember who wrote it. Um,
1: Probably Daniel Goleman, I reckon.
0: Yep, yep, yep. That's the one. Mm. <laughs> and that, yeah. and this is good pull, Ross. And mm. I remember reading through it and thinking, you know, at the time I was about twenty-one years old, and I remember thinking, "Oh shit, I have some work to do." Mm. But I was only mm. twenty-one. You know, so of course I had work to do. I, you know, I didn't grow up in a highly educated area with highly educated parents. You know, I I had what I had. And I think for all intents and purposes, it was fairly high for that time. But I read that book and I just, uh, you know, kind of, it kind of just made me stop and say, okay, well, you've got some work to do, honey. Hmm
1: we we all do and it's one of those things one of the interesting things about emotional intelligence is that babies are born with it you know it's 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 a life well it really is a matter of life and death for a baby because if they can't emotionally connect with their caregivers they run the risk of being abandoned on the side of the road you know because when you think about how difficult it is to look after a baby if we didn't immediately connect with them and love them and feel this overwhelming need to protect them we would probably just leave them somewhere um and as we get older, what happens when kids reach teenagehood is when all the hormones kick in is they become very emotionally unintelligent. It's one of the things that goes is their, their ability to, to look at other people and go, how are you feeling? Check in with themselves, go, how am I feeling? They lose the resources around how to navigate emotions effectively. They find emotions very overwhelming. And then when we reach that kind of early, um, early 20s, we start to either gain it back, which a lot of people do, or for some people, they don't because it's not important in their world and so they don't um, reconnect with it. What I do find is that when people start to pay attention to it and they start to learn about it, they can actually redevelop the skill quite quickly because it's always been there. It's one of those innate, you know, you've got it, you're born with it and it's yeah. just a matter of reconnecting with it and switching it back on, so to speak. So I do find that people can, um, you know, provided they're within the normal, um, I guess, the normal range of, of ability, uh, can develop quite quickly I mean, obviously there are some uh, neuro disorders which mean that people, for example, there are some people who cannot read faces. Right. And they cannot recognise people's faces. They can only recognise you when you talk to them. They just, you know, it's called being face blind. And for somebody with face blindness, it would obviously be very difficult to learn it. But for, for the majority of people, we can actually learn it really quickly once because it's always been there. It's just a matter of turning it back on.
0: Right. And so you wrote a book called The Resilient Employee. And mm-hmm. resiliency is something that comes up on the podcast a lot and is something I use in my work and I call it bounce-back ability. What do mm. you think the combination is or the connection is between emotional intelligence and resilience?
1: It's actually very they're very connected because emotional intelligence is what enables resilience in people because it gives us this kind of um, some key components to resilience and that is things like um, feeling competent which is that sense of knowing that I can get through this that whatever life throws at me I've got good coping skills I've got good problem solving skills I can work it out there's having a good sense of optimism which is again connected to this solid sense of self and a sense of self-esteem I you know things will work out for me there's having good social support which is about the connections and the networks that we forge and the people that we surround ourselves with and again emotionally intelligent people will have good social support because they connect really highly effectively with people. And then there's having a really clear sense of purpose, which is for, you know, again, emotional intelligence comes into this, this ability to really uh, understand yourself, the real self-awareness piece. And emotional intelligence has a lot to do with resilience in, in a lot of ways. I so find there's some very practical things associated with it. So things like, um, you know, emotional management, there's some really it's a really simple way of, of defining it, I guess, which is called go to and go through the emotion. So going to the emotion is being able to give it a name and being able to unpack why you feel the way you feel. So, for example, I feel really angry about this change at work and the reason I feel really angry about it is because I'm losing my sense of security. And once you've been able to do that piece and unpack that, it then becomes quite easy to then say, okay, so, you know, this isn't something that's outside of my control. It's something that I can deal with. I can't deal with the external circumstance, but I can deal with my reaction and how I feel about it. And then going through the emotion is this piece about, so what do you want to do? What are your options here? So it's a recognising and then a managing, which is is quite strategic. It's what do I intend to do about this? And when you've got a high level of emotional intelligence and you run that process naturally all the time, how do I feel? Why do I feel the way I feel? And then what do I want to do about it? Um, managing any change that life throws at you becomes a lot easier. It's it's quite a simple technique, but it's one that is incredibly powerful when it comes to, to building resilience.
0: Right. And and something that you wrote in the introduction to your book um, is something that I want to share because I think that I think that we pretend that this isn't true and, and, and it is. So you wrote, so you see, change impacts us all. No one is immune to change. No one can hide from it. No one can build a fortress strong enough to deter it. I loved that last line because I feel like so often a When we lack this sense of resilience, this belief in our own resilience, this belief in our own ability to bounce back, we pretend almost that we can build a fortress that is strong enough to deter change and that we can create this false sense of stability. And then when the foundation under the fortress starts to crack and something shifts, we find ourselves in the middle of a shitstorm, for lack of a better term
1: yes it's very true that um, again it comes back to lack of self awareness in a lot of a mm-hmm. lot of cases this idea that if I just dig my heels in enough I can make the change go away or if I resist it long and hard enough it'll stop and it's it, it, reality of life is that change happens to all of us I mean people it, it's not that we don't like change it's a bit of a um, false statement that the people don't like change because we love change if we instigated ourselves you know if we didn't like change you'd never get a haircut or buy new clothes you know (laughs) so it's the change being imposed on us from outside but the reality of life is that change is constant it's getting you know as we move into the modern world i mean i look at my grandfather he passed away a few years ago now a couple of years ago he lived to 97 and in his lifetime he went from having horses and carts to the first vehicles, you know, first cars right through to putting a man on the moon, to space shuttles, to computers, to, and that's a lot of change in one person's lifetime. Yeah. And you look at the pace of change, you know, prior to that, you know, really prior to the Industrial Revolution, people, p- things didn't change a lot. I mean, you had famines and you had wars and things like that. But, is it you know, if you were living in a village somewhere and your father was a blacksmith, you could reasonably expect that you would become a blacksmith yourself and you'd take over the family business eventually and you'd probably never go more than about 20 miles away from where you were born. Right. And now change is just so um, constant. Everything's changing all the time and we can't, it, you know, resistance is not an option.
0: Right. It's just not right and this is this is something that keeps coming up in every single interview that i'm doing in different formats that this this ability to create more resilience in your life and the fact that there are internal and external the same as we said earlier there are internal boundaries and external boundaries there is internal change and external change there are parts of life that you do not control i don't care who your life coach is and i don't care how mm. much you love the law of attraction mm. There are yeah. there because everybody is involved in creating the world, and every there's all these different energies that are merging all the time, and sometimes things are going to happen from the outside that you will have to respond to in one way or another, and mm. how you choose to respond to it leads to your eventual success, health, or lack of.
1: Mm.
0: Often, and, and or other- not, because sometimes you can't control that either.
1: Sometimes you can't control that, and yeah. Look, one of the things I do with clients. So when I run one of my thriving in change programs, for example, is one of the there's a couple of activities, and one of them is uh, you know circles of influence, which is mm. drawing like a big target on a, a big sheet of paper, and it, you write down all the things that you're concerned about about the change that's occurring. And in the the middle circle, I ask them to write all the things that they're concerned about that they have control over, and then in the outside circle, it's mm-hmm. all the things you're concerned about that you can't control. And that is a really interesting piece of perspective shift because it moves them away from worrying about all these things, you know, there's a huge, huge number of things they're worried about, into actually the only things that I control, that I can control, that are in the centre of my circle, I might have four or five things. And it's okay, let's, it's all right to be concerned about the other things, but it's, let's not stress too much about it. Let's just focus on the things that you can control. Let's work on those. And even things like reframing it into what are all the possible opportunities that could come out of this change. Again, people start to think differently about it. It's it's a lot of its perspective shifting. And that's got a lot to do with, again, this resilience piece around people who are optimistic are generally more resilient because it's perspective. It's yes, there's a lot of stuff going on, but I figure that it'll, it'll work out for the best. Or I can see that even though this is a really big change that I'm not comfortable with, there might be some opportunities in it for me rather than seeing everything as doom and gloom.
0: Right. And that's one of my favorite life coaching exercises. I'm so glad that you um, brought it up. If you have that worksheet, it's something that I would love to put in the show notes for people to play with.
1: Yes, I'm sure I've got it. Well, I have got a copy of it somewhere. It's, in, it's certainly on a slide somewhere, but it's yeah, it's a lovely activity. And it's just, um, yeah, it's, it just puts perspective around it. That's what I find is that when you get stuck in change and you get stuck in the negativity of it, we lose perspective. We start to feel like Uh, everything is a big challenge and somehow we're at fault for not being able to deal with it at all. That's one of the things that people beat themselves up about. I I should be dealing with change. I look at other people and they're dealing with it and I'm not. And I find that, um, you know, again, unpacking the emotions around change, one of the interesting things that usually happens in a large group or a, a team that are going through it together is they'll say, somebody will say, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one who wasn't dealing with this. I thought everybody else was fine. And it's such a relief to find out that everybody else is feeling the same way.
0: This is exactly why we're doing this podcast.
1: Hmm. Because everybody feels that way.
0: Everybody goes through this. And when, especially when you're in that place where you feel like you're mm. the only one going through something, it's so easy to burn out. Because another one of the, I think all of the burnout symptoms are just like the feeling impactful or not feeling impactful. They're all closed circles. You know, they, they, they feed off of each other. And one of the symptoms of burnout science, from the scientific point of view is feeling disconnected.
1: Yes. Feeling disconnected
0: from people. Right. So if you're feeling disconnected, you're going to burn out. And if you're burnt out, you're going to feel disconnected. And again, we're stuck on this cycle. So one of the major goals of this podcast, from my perspective, is to let people know that they are not alone. We have Mm -hmm. all been there at some time or another. When I put out the call to record this podcast, I had 33 interviews scheduled within 48 hours.
1: Wow. And that's because everybody's got their story. Everybody okay. experiences it. And it's part of normalising the process. Uh, yes. again, one of, one of what I'm aiming for in a lot of the work I do is to normalise the process so people realise that it's actually normal and it's expected. We can actually, ex- when a big change happens to us, we can actually expect to go through this. It's the um, Elizabeth Kubler Ross's uh, grief cycle. You know, we get. Um, you know we go into denial and then we get you know we get upset and we get angry and we get sad and we get depressed and then we start to question it and then we start to move through it we start to you know eventually accept it and finally integrate it but all of that's completely normal and people worry that their reactions are too extreme or I don't know I shouldn't feel upset about this or I shouldn't be getting angry about it and it's actually normal and when they realize that it's it's not only normal but it's actually expected they it's it's often a huge relief to people to kind of go, okay, I get it. It's fine. I'm just, I'm just being human.
0: Yeah. It gives you the freedom and permission to exist as a human being.
1: Yeah. And it's, I say to people, look, this, when you work through this sort of grief cycle, there's no right or wrong. There's no good way. There's no bad way. Fast is just fast. It's not good. You know, the key thing to note is that you're moving forward and you will go sort of two steps forward, one step back, but it's making sure that as you're working your way through the process that you are gradually making progress even if things happen to you that send you shooting right back around to anger, for example, it's, it's okay, you're angry again, but let's see, We apply the tools we've got and work through it and try and work through it a little bit quicker this time. So it's that sense of constantly moving forward, even if you're moving forward and then backwards and forward and then backwards, that you're incrementally, you know, moving in some way. And that's the bit that, um, you know, because again, people beat themselves up. It's that sense of, well, everybody else is over the change and I'm not, so there must be something wrong with me. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just slower at processing than other people, and it's not a bad thing. It's no, like there's no good or bad. It just is.
0: Right. And somebody else might not be processing it from the outside. It might look like hmm. they're doing okay with it, but we don't know what's going on in there.
1: Exactly. They might be coming to work, and, you know, everything's wonderful, and they're sailing through, and then they go home at night, and they kick their cat, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, we don't know what people are actually going through. We're not sure about any of that.
1: Yeah, And so much of the work experience is again this is gets back to emotional intelligence, is that so much of the experience we have in the workplace is about parking our emotions and not talking about them and not showing them and it's you know you've got to put your game face on when you come to work and it, it dehumanizes the workplace it takes away from the fact that humans we're emotional creatures everything we do is based on emotion our decisions are emotional we just back them up with logic afterwards and yet we sort of pretend that we can hang our emotions in a coat cupboard on the way in the door and pick them up on the way out again and it just doesn't work like that
0: yeah yeah I absolutely agree Roz if there was something that you could share with people today to say, okay, this is your first step. If, if you've been listening and saying, oh my God, this is what I need. This is what I need. This is the conversation that I need to be having. This is the kind of help I need. What is the first step for someone who's resonating with what we're saying today? What should they do?
1: The key thing, getting back to my own experience going through cancer, the key thing is to do that initial gap analysis of where do I want to be and where am I now and then what boundaries do I need to put in place that will help me get to where I want to go that's really the key thing is you've got to have a vision of where you want to go you've got to be um, clear about what's not working for you now you've got to have some I guess some easy practical steps to get you there and you know really the key thing for me that and what I go back to all the time with my clients is this piece around boundaries. And it's not just the boundaries you set with other people. It's the boundaries you set with yourself.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. absolutely agree. Roz, that was jam-packed full of awesome information for people to use. I am so grateful for your time and energy and knowledge. I feel like you could easily talk about this for about eight hours, and I could easily listen to you for yeah. about that long. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Only eight
0: hours? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, at least. <laughs>
1: At least, yes. At
0: least. We could do a full day on this, no problem. But I feel like we really did touch some really key points. And if they go back to paying attention to your body, maintaining your boundaries, increasing your resilience, increasing your emotional intelligence, and just paying attention to who you are and how you are in the world.
1: Mm, That's it. It's paying – it's being intentional, being mindful and intentional because we lose our intentionality a lot of the time. It's that sort of sense of – we get stuck in the rut, we get stuck in habit and that's where, again, the boundaries come down and we start taking on too much or, or giving too much of ourselves because we've lost the intentionality. And it's really one of the things I do is that every I start every day with an intention and I think um, it's a good practice for everybody. I certainly recommend it to my clients is I start with an intention and I use um goddess oracle cards and I just pull one out I don't use them in the traditional oracle sense but just as an inspiration card mm-hmm. so I'll pull one out and just say for example like the one I had this morning was compassion and for me it's about then being really intentional about bringing compassion into my day like how am I going to go through my day today, being compassionate to myself being compassionate to the people around me and then at the end of the day I'll do a check back in and go how did I go do I feel like I, I brought my best compassionate self to every interaction that I had today So intentional practice is actually a very important thing as well is to set your intention for the day. How are you going to be in the day? How are you intending to show up? It can be inspirational quotes or um, religious religious passages, whatever it is that floats your boat, but just finding some way of setting an intention at the beginning of the day.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. And mine today was connection. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm feeling good about that right now because I feel like this conversation flowed really easily and and I really feel like we did a lot of a lot of good. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Roz, for being here with me. Well, today, tomorrow, for my tomorrow for you right now.
1: <laughs> yes, Wednesday morning over here.
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you again so much for being here. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and I can't wait to hear everyone else's feedback about how this went for them, what they learned from this episode. And please, please, please share this with everyone that you think could benefit from it, who I am assuming after being part of this conversation is everyone that you know.
1: Yes, pretty much. <laughs>
0: I, thank you so much for having
1: me on. I've really enjoyed it. It's Like you said, I could talk about this for hours and no doubt you could could as well. Um, I really hope that I've added some value to the people who listen and that, you know, we can all walk away today perhaps being slightly better people than we were yesterday.
0: I'm sure that is the truth. Thank you so much again and I will talk to you soon. Thank
1: you.